for today, we're going to talk further about application and then about that uh, Newton and Einstein stuff that I handed out. Now, this is actually going to be a pretty important session. Um, and I, I want to say, say some stuff kind of overall to the class. Been thinking about this particular class period quite a bit over the weekend. And that is the, and, and we've seen this, what I'm going to talk about now, we've seen this in the theological interviews with fourth year guys, what I'm going to talk about now. And that is, sometimes you get the impression that what goes on in class kind of doesn't make it to people's minds and hearts. Or what goes on in class doesn't actually affect the way people think about stuff. You know, they learn the stuff for the class, but in the end, the way they approach things is pretty much the way they did when they came into the seminary. In fact, I said that to one of the guys in the theological interview. I said, you know, your, your answers were not unorthodox. There was nothing doctrinally impure. It's just that you could have given me those answers before you came to the sem. I didn't see any sort of depth of understanding new ways of looking at things, deeper ways of looking at things. And I have to say, this is the thing that I am always concerned, I'm not speaking about this particular class here, but always concerned about with E102, with hermeneutics, is that you go through all of these deep considerations of issues and in the end, the guys come out doing exegesis pretty much the way they came in. And I, I want to make sure we talk about that a little bit today. Um, <clears throat> it's one of the reasons why I decided to give you that article, Reading Scripture as Lutherans in the Postmodern Era, which really does take a different view of things. I mean, you've got to admit that. We're going to deal with that in the last part of the period. But do you know that that article, published in the Lutheran Quarterly, 2000, since I published, had that article published in LQ 2000, I have had, now, I, I think it makes some pretty outrageous claims at points about objectivity and, and the way the Bible is set up, that there are sort of two massive kinds of theological perspectives and so on like that. Since I had that article published, I have received precisely no reaction. I find this unbelievable. At least you would think people would say, holy smoke, you know, you're just undercutting everything, the Buzz Bell approach. Uh, I did receive one brief letter from a retired physicist who wanted to argue with me about some of the quantum physics stuff. But that had no, what would you say, 
It had no material effect upon the argumentation of the article. He wasn't really arguing about that. Um, so in chapter 13 of what does this mean, on the part on application, my great fear always is, after the mumbo-jumbo, everybody still goes out and allegorizes. Okay? No matter how much you want to talk about this stuff, you still get Jesus stilling the storm. Still winds up in the sermon, I fear, as Jesus takes care of the storms of your life. And you know what? If finally you wind up allegorizing everything, you haven't actually assimilated anything from the Course. I'm not saying anybody here is doing that. I'm just saying I've just seen it, you know, over the years. And allegorizing is nothing other than what I call component stripping. What you do is you take the characteristics of the conceptual signifieds that are evoked by the story, and then you just strip enough away until it becomes general enough, like, for example, the storms of your life. Okay, so it's, eh, it doesn't have to be on the water. And it doesn't have to be in Galilee. And it doesn't have to be in the first century. And it doesn't have to involve a boat. But see, when we strip enough stuff away, you get sort of, what, generalized danger. And Jesus, well, he doesn't have to be incarnate in the flesh. And, you know, you strip enough stuff away, and it is, Jesus helps you. Uh, well, you got to be better than that. You, you really got to be better than that because interpretation involves more than that. Now, last time we talked about the difference between conduct as a manifestation or incarnation of condition and conduct as revelatory. And so we were dealing with what's the difference between 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I went back and I got one of the previous reaction papers that I had saved. And I wanted to read this to you as a kind of a continuation of that discussion. And this now has to do with what do you mean in 1 Corinthians 11? by an activity that is revelatory and not an incarnation, like 1 Timothy 2, a woman having authority over her husband is actually incarnating what is not supposed to happen. But how is that different from the business of hairstyles or covering or hats or whatever you're going to do in 1 Corinthians? Now, Aaron Putnam, who recently graduated, uh, married a woman from Guatemala. And he, in his reaction paper back a few years ago, said the following, and I, I want to read this to you. This is very good. An example of revelatory sending messages comes from Guatemala. If a wife goes out for dinner and a movie with her girlfriends in Guatemala, people will generally view her negatively, assuming that, one, 
she is not faithful to her husband and is looking for another man, or two, that she must be a very strong-willed and stubborn person since her husband is not able to keep her in the home. However, in many places in the U.S., this conduct is often seen by people in a positive light, namely, that the wife's relationship with the husband is so strong that the husband trusts her to go out with her girlfriends and that he's willing to make a sacrifice, maybe take care of the kids, for her to be able to enjoy herself with her friends. In each case, the conduct is the same, but the conduct sends different messages depending upon the cultural context. So, this would be like Paul saying something like, well, don't go out, wives, don't go out alone with the girlfriends. Don't you realize that it is a shame for a woman to do that? See, in that kind of Guatemalan context, it would be. In a different context, it is not. So going out to a restaurant with some friends is not incarnating any wrong activity. It is the messages that it sends, and that's the point of 1 Corinthians 11. Now, let's just extrapolate from the Aaron Putnam example. Here's an example now of conduct that is actually incarnating something wrong. Don't go out and have an affair with a guy. Now, that itself, of course, is going to be revelatory and send a message that she is not in a right relationship with her husband. Obviously, it does that. But the act in itself is wrong. It's not just this revelatory thing. It's actually incarnating a wrong thing. Hence the first Timothy 2, having authority over one's husband. So that's basically the difference. This is an outstanding example here of uh, the difference between an action itself being problematical and an action being revelatory of a problematical situation. In the latter case, the action itself is negotiable once the cultural context changes. Now, uh, in this regard, and I'm going to talk about this later, I'm going to put this up here on the overhead, this particular uh, important article which is referenced in the reading scripture as Lutherans in the postmodern era, is different voices shared vision, male and female in Trinitarian community, a number of people writing here, uh, and I'm particularly interested in the essay by Marva Dawn, and this is this hermeneutical considerations for biblical texts. Now, that's the article I refer to in the Lutheran Quarterly article, and she is one who says that there are these three different kinds of texts. I'm going to talk about that a few minutes hence from now. But, but it, is, it is her contention that some texts are just kind of by their very nature completely culture-bound, and then some texts by their very nature aren't culture-bound at all, and then there's narrative, which is something different. Now, that's a, that's a different way to handle the application situation, and it's one that I think is completely faulty. Now, I'm bringing this, I'm going to put this up on the board here. 
I'm bringing this up explicitly because her argumentation, which is a very strong argument, is fundamentally and fatally flawed and, and has to be kind of known, I guess you would say, um, uh, known and addressed explicitly. Um, And part of the reason I'm bringing it up here is, well, here, I can uh, just put this particular page up here of this article. Her three kinds of texts, normative or instructive texts, which give basic fundamental principles characterizing the people of God, descriptive texts that narrate examples of practices acceptable among the people of God, and problematical or problematic or corrective texts, which deal with specific problems among the Jews or in the early church. And her basic idea is everything under three is negotiable and changes with culture, but one and two, or A and B, are not. Uh, uh, it's, it's way too simple, and one thing that is extremely too simple is the notion that narrative is as simple as it is. So that's the next thing I want to go on to for today, is the business of applying narrative. Guys, this is probably one of the hardest things there is. How do you apply narratives? You see people simply making analogical moves constantly. Stuff like this. Deborah was a leader of Israel, therefore women can be in the pastoral office. Jesus picked only male disciples, therefore women cannot be in the pastoral office. Remember the example from chapter 13 of Paul and Barnabas splitting up? Well, you can do all kinds of things. Hey, when you have a team ministry, if it doesn't work out, split up and get a better guy. Hey, when you have a team ministry and it doesn't work out, you shouldn't split up. Paul wasn't right. Hey, we have no idea. It's just a description of what happened. I mean, what do you do with this? What do you do with narrative making application from it? Remember, the last refuge of the exegetical scoundrel is allegorizing it. You strip away enough components until it's, it's what shall we say, mealy-mouthed enough, and then you say it's just like now. Now, I have to say, I, I didn't know whether I had the heart to actually say it in the class today, but I'm going to use this example. I actually heard in a church in this area a pastor say the following. This was in the context of the church's pastor had been removed for strong allegations, which he didn't really fight, of infidelity. And the circuit counselor came in and, believe it or not, used as his text for the congregational study the death of Judas. So he started Judas hanging himself and um, his replacement in the book of Acts. Well, here's what he did. He said, this situation is just like Judas. Well, the pastor wasn't an apostle. And 
the pastor didn't really physically betray the Lord. And, well, he didn't really hang himself. And, you know, he just kept stripping away components until he finally got where he wanted to go, which was, by his actions, he had betrayed the Lord, and now the church was moving like they did in Acts 1 to do a replacement. Well, I probably should have stood up and said, for Pete's sake, sit down before you shame yourself completely, you know? This was horrible. It's absolutely horrible. So, when you're applying narrative, essentially, there are two things that I think you gotta just take a look at. And by the way, this I had to beef this up from the first edition to the second edition of this text in chapter 13. First of all, you're going to be dealing with a situation of proleptic eschatology. I'm using that as our whole kingdom of God and all that stuff. All right, so this is why we spent all that time with Addendum 11b. If you want to know how an activity is to be understood and where we might fit into that, you've got to understand this whole proleptic eschatology thing. Then the second thing is, there is the literary or narrative context. Now, do you remember I did this for you guys with the parable of the sower and the seed the other day? When I was saying the parable of the sower and the seed and the parables of the kingdom come hard upon the rejection of Jesus. See? So immediately I'm, put thing, I'm putting them within their literary narrative context. I'm not just dropping pericopes in from the sky and saying, hey, how does this activity affect you or something like that? So uh, I'll take your question. Let me go, just go through an example. Let's take the example of um, Herod seeking to kill the baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 and the flight into Egypt and so on. Now, what you're going to be doing if you allegorize it, it'll wind up, you've got to strip enough components away. You know, you're not a king and nobody else is a king and all this kind of stuff. And finally, you're going to get into something like, God helps us out whenever we're in trouble or something along those lines. But if you're going to do real application, you're going to have to make the following kinds of observations. In Christ, the reality of the kingdom of God has come and come truly in the flesh. We are part of that reality. As we have been baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, and we are part of that reality. Now, Evil fights back at this invasion from the future of the reign and rule of God. We see it in Herod. 
We see it in Acts chapter 12 when James is killed. We see that sometimes the evil can be very effective, like the killing of all the baby boys under the age of two. We actually might be more like those babies or like James in Acts 12. But finally, because this invasion of the reign and rule of God cannot be stopped and does issue in the new creation, finally the meek shall inherit the earth. We may, in fact, not simply be easily rescued, but we will surely triumph at the end of time when death, the last enemy, is finally done away with and we will be part of the new creation. So now, I have, I have put the whole story within the coming of the kingdom of God. I can also make the following points. Now, I'm, I've switched models now. Watch what I'm doing. I'm switching models now to the en Christol model. That in Christ, in Christ, is full triumph. Christ himself goes down, escapes, comes back, and is, uh, and is triumphant. And we triumph in him. You can do that if you want to as well. Now, what about the book of Matthew? Now I'm on point two. The literary, on the board, the literary or narrative context. So, Jesus, as I said, is the fulfillment in himself of God's purposes, the en Christo model. And in Matthew, we see this implementation in these first chapters. He goes down to Egypt and comes back like the people of God. He's in the desert for 40 days, not 40 years. He recapitulates everything that happens to the people of God, and he is triumphant. We also see the Gentiles coming to him in the coming of the Magi. Well, Jesus is the Whitman sampler of this, the first. The Magi come to him. We are part of the Gentiles who are coming. In other words, Literarily, you can see in Matthew's development of this that the Gentiles come throughout and finally the message goes out in Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. They come in the initial stage with Jesus. The message goes out to everybody. You can't even bring in, if you want, something like the uh, parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard where... The vineyards given to other people who will give the fruits thereof. That's us. That's us. So in the coming of Jesus, we who are not Jews, we can see with the coming of the Magi that we too are included in this. You see, now I, I mean we can expand on this, but you see what I've done here in the application, how I've gotten... I've gotten the story to apply to us 
Now, now listen to how I'm going to say this. I've gotten the story to apply to us not by component stripping and seeing how it applies, but by getting us into the narrative of the kingdom of God and to see how that narrative is shaped in the particular gospel or in the book of Acts or wherever you are, Paul or something like that. So you might say it'd be something like this. I could use this kind of a Johannine uh, sort of model. Remember how I said with the hidden reality, it's like in the ocean or something where you have islands. Islands are actually underwater mountains that are sticking up. Well, you know what? Jesus coming is like this. And, you know, maybe if we were going to do this a little bit more visibly, realistically, we might say that after his coming, you know, the, the, the visibility seems a little bit smaller. But this is reality here. And we're part of this. That's how you make the application. That's how you make the application. You don't make the application by simply making this cheap move. What happened to him happens to us. This is an interesting example. Let's strip away enough components so it's vanilla enough. Whoa, then it applies to us. You know, you may not even be in the part of the story you're thinking. Like I say, I think when you apply the wicked tenants of the vineyard, where you want to make application is, and you know what? The kingdoms come to us by the mercy of God. He didn't just destroy it all with the people of Israel uh, um, rejecting it. What he did was he exploded it. Whoop, he exploded it outward. Yeah, just like that. He exploded it outward so that it actually took in all of humanity, and we are benefiting by it. Um, I am, I am so concerned about this, guys. As I, I've been thinking about this class all weekend, um, and I'm trying to do a better job than I have done heretofore, I guess I'd say explicitly making this point, you know, that you can't be doing cheap application. You've got to actually be doing application that flows out of the level two narrative, so to speak, and the pro this is See, this is why we have Addendum 11B in the book. This is why it's in the book. Because it gives you the theological context. Then, on level two, you get the literary context with narrative. To be able to see, holy smoke, Oh, let's go back. Let's go back to the parable of the sower and the seed. Remember what I said? This comes up when Jesus is being rejected and so on like that. So the application is not you have four kinds of soil in your hearts. I would say an application of that parable is your evangelism committee. Just as the kingdom of God's message has been passed down to us, and we are now guerrilla warfare warriors from the future for the kingdom of God and sanctification and so on, and we take the message outward. You know what? 
What's good for the master is good for the servant. You too are going to find some people are completely hardened to the message. Other people, hey, it lasts a while. Some people, cares of the world. But some people will respond. See, now we're linking what we're doing to the progress of the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing. And I'm not simply going something like this. Jesus seeds soil and me. Hmm. How does that fit together? And then you start kind of making applications in that allegorical way. All right, Oz, let's take your question. So then, well, the question kept changing the more you talked, but uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. The, what we're trying, so basically what you're saying is we're not doing any allegorical comparison in those terms, but we're more looking to parallel the story to, or parallel the, the narrative text to situations that we're dealing with in life. Or not situations, but... Now, I, I don't know that I would... I, I, I'm worried about the word paralleling. I would rather say that you are seeing how you as a participant in the reign and rule of God in your own way, maybe the springs down, maybe the springs up, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, how, how is that relevant for you? Yeah, yeah, for you as part of this same team and all the rest. And, but, you know, don't, don't forget number, number two. Don't forget number two. You can't just float the stories, you can't just take the stories out of their literary context and then float them around as if Luke didn't put them in a particular place and Matthew didn't put them in a particular place and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, an example, cleansing of the temple. You know, remember this is discussed in Addendum 11a, Luther has that thing about, gee, it's early in Jesus' ministry in John, but in the synoptics it's in Holy Week and who knows, you know, maybe it happened twice, maybe he was just doing something, we don't know. Well, when you're preaching it, it's way different. There isn't just a cleansing of the temple. All of a sudden you have a cleansing of the temple early, which shows you right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's the guy. The time is coming and now is when they will worship neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not later, but now. He's already become the replacement, even while he is there. So Jesus as the fundamental replacement, right from the beginning of his ministry, has a little bit different applicability than it does later on at the beginning of of Holy Week when it's more in conjunction to the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard and stuff like that. See? So you, you can't neglect number two. And I have to say, this was the change that I made between the first and second editions of the book, is I had to beef up number two because it sounded a little bit too much like you were just kind of floating around with number one. JB. 
Okay. Um, is there any, I've got two questions. Is there any use like on a secondary level, obviously not for a primary source, but on secondary to use allegory like? All right. Now, now a couple of you asked that, or no, that was your paper. Uh, a couple of you asked that point um, of whether or not there was actually a use for allegory. Now, this is very interesting. I do think that there are some stories in the Bible that are actually exemplary on kind of an allegorical basis. I'm going to give you something right now, but I'm going to observe before I do that what I give you as an example is interesting because of the fact that it has zero impact in the New Testament. Okay? Here's my example. The stories about Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. All right? Now, I think that's sort of an allegory of the way things are for the people of God and so on. But it's so interesting that the figure of Joseph, while it takes up so many chapters in the book of Genesis, figures not at all in the discussion of the coming of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. And I think that's the reason why. Because it's not like you are part of the reality in the same way you are with Abraham, but they are actually example stories. And, that, and they should probably be taken that way. Now, here's... Here's where I think a very difficult issue comes up. And that is teaching and preaching the Old Testament for children. Because, you know, once you get through the big sort of Veltz mumbo jumbo of proleptic eschatology and the arrows going and all that kind of stuff, what are you doing when they're six? You know, well, this... This is an interesting point and challenge, and there's no, no question about that. Um, but it doesn't mean that this cheap component stripping allegorizing is essentially what it means to apply a text. Um, Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. The application is not that we can now use our hands for God's purposes. That is component stripping and allegorizing. I mean, you could do a direct allegory, as I say in the book, and say, hey, if you believe enough, God will heal your hands. If they're, or let, let's, let's strip a couple of components, your body parts, if you believe enough, or something like that. But it seems to me that what you have is you have Jesus here coming in and healing, bringing back to fullness the creation that has been crushed by sin, death, and the devil before this. And here we see, it's not mentioned specifically this way, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dung sing for joy. But the hands of the those who are withered will be healed and the leprous will be healed. And Jesus actually mentions all of this. This is the new creation actually being restored. And with some of these limbs not being right, 
Those were all the things the pre that couldn't make you a priest in the Old Testament. Well, now we see we're going to get by all that by the new creation. Did you have your hand up? No. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, with, with the kids and say the story of yeah. Joseph, is it fair to say... Use Joseph. No, it's fine. That, that's an allegorizable story. Okay, so just yeah. as God took care of Joseph, he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I think that that's kind of the purpose of those stories. Those are actually allegorizable stories. Right. No, no, we've we got to keep moving here. Um, now, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, I want to get on to that. In chapter 13, let's take a look at that. In chapter 13, one of your sources is, here on the important resources, is Luther, how, a Chris, how Christians should regard Moses, volume 35 in Luther's works. Folks, please take the time to read that essay. Because that essay, which argues that, essentially what you have with, let's say, the law in the Old Testament, is you have a clear vision of the natural law, but the law in the Old Testament per se is not binding. Now, look what I'm going to put up on the board here. There are basically two ways to deal with the laws in the Old Testament. There's the whole business of other narratives and King David and all the rest, and I think that's pretty clear in the book. But I do want to make a special point about this. In general, people have taken the approach that you have moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. And the general approach has been that these two are done away with in the Old Testament and that the moral law remains with the New Testament. That's been the general Protestant approach. Luther's approach is to cancel them all out and say everything has been done away with from the Old Covenant, including the moral law. Now, folks, that's exactly why Luther fiddles around with the commandments. And suddenly, um, suddenly the third commandment... No, no, i gotta go, I got to back up, actually. This is why Lutherans adopted, along with the Roman Catholics, a view of the commandments that does not make the prohibition of graven images the second commandment. So Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists all have as the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven images. And then they combine 9 and 10. So you have to be aware of this when you say the fifth commandment, to your Baptist friends, that's about parents, and for you, it's about murder. Now, why did Luther get rid of that? 
Why did Luther change the third commandment from remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy to thou shalt sanctify the holy day? No, not so he could. He did that along with others. The fact of the matter is, his view is, the actual expression of the Ten Commandments is culturally bound. What's not bound is what stands as a fundament behind the moral law, which is natural law binding on all people. It's one of the reasons why Lutherans have always been so strong on natural law. So everybody all over the place knows you have to worship, knows you shouldn't kill, knows there's not free sex, knows you can't steal. There may be tweaking around of the details. Maybe you can steal from your enemies or something, but everybody knows you can't have just wholesale stealing. You may be able to kill your enemies or even kill others who are in your tribe, but you probably can't kill everybody, like your family and so on. There are consanguinity laws, all that kind of stuff. Now, a basic analogy for what's happening here would be something like the following. Let's say Buzz is engaged. Buzz lives in, in uh, Tennessee, and he is engaged. His, two, his family and another family have gotten together, and uh, Lulubel from this other family is his intended. And Lulubel lives on the other side of this deep valley. What color hair? Hold on, her name's Lulubel? So Lulu. she's already got the same her last, last name. name will be Bell. Lulubel Bell. Lulubel Bell. That's great. Good. All right, now, attempting to focus, he is, yes, yes, attempting to, attempting to focus here. He is betrothed to this girl. She lives across the valley, kind of no way over there. It's about, uh, I'd say, a mile away. So he can make her out. He has some idea. Blonde hair, trim figure, okay? She's not real tall, but she's not real short either and so on. Then one day, somebody brings a color photograph of Lulabelle. The yellow, the, the, the uh, photograph is a close-up picture of her. It isn't her. He's actually marrying the girl. But it is a clearer picture of her than trying to peer across the valley a mile away. That's the analogy of the way the Ten Commandments work. They're not the natural law but they are a kind of explicit expression of the natural law. And there may be certain features that you might just do away with. Like, for example, it shows her wearing a blue dress. Well, she doesn't wear that blue dress all the time, so some of this stuff is negotiable. So that's an analogy to say, this is what you're really focusing upon. This is what's really controlling the scheme. And this over here, the Ten Commandments, this is what you, uh, you can see clearly, something like that.
Now, not everybody agrees with this, but I do want you to understand what the argument actually is. That is the argument of Luther. I think it's a good argument. Paul Robbie doesn't think so. He thinks that you go with the other scheme over there on the left side. JB. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, and then the last thing before I get on to this other article, and that is, of all the things that you should have gotten out of, uh, as you're going through 13, is just how complex all of this stuff actually is, and you, you sort of can't shortcut it. You've got level one stuff, and you've got signifiers and conceptual signifieds. Is it literal? Is it not literal? You've got level two stuff. You can read on level three. That gives you your isagogical stuff. You've got the application issues, but then you also have things like illocutionary force, perlocutionary force. That's part of the whole thing, and all of this is involved. Now, in the few remaining moments that, for, um, uh, for this session, and then what I want to do is uh, uh, just for Wednesday, I'll pick up a little bit here. This article in, in the Lutheran Quarterly, Reading Scripture as Lutherans in the Postmodern Era, um, there are two major things I really want you to get out of this. Now, first of all, uh, well, there, uh, let me put up the first one here. On page 312, concerning objectivity. All discourse is situated or contextualized uh, as are the data of the reality which it seeks to reflect, which means that there is no discourse which is a non-context-bound description of reality and therefore immediately transferable to all other contexts. Now, almost nobody agrees with me on this. You have to understand this that this is a pretty radical statement, that you do not essentially have sort of objective, easily transferable things that just come over. Now, this is where we return to the Marva Dawn issue. Now, before I do that, let me just say the second one has to do with a comprehensive explanation and this is on page 320 concerning comprehensive explanation that all discourse is perspectival. It does not convey an easy comprehensive message and therefore an easy comprehensive picture of reality. That second one is the Newton and Einstein thing. And we'll talk about that more uh, next time. But this time, I want you to see these three kinds of texts once again from Marva Dawn's essay entitled Hermeneutical Considerations for Biblical Text. See, she believes that there are sort of objective texts and expressions of things so that you can, here, just immediately bring them over. Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. 
slave nor free, male nor female. And that then becomes a class A text, immediately transferable to you. But 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, oh no, that's a class C text, a corrective text. And that's all negotiable now. All right, the Jim Veltz reply to this is, all texts are class C. Every text is contextualized. So, you want to say, in Christ there is no male nor female, slave or free? Yeah, you know what? Then all of a sudden you turn around and Paul's saying stuff like, slaves obey your masters in the Lord, or if, uh, uh, if you're able to get your freedom, take it, but otherwise not. There was, there was no sense in which this became programmatic, Galatians 3.28, for an abolition of slavery. Finally, slavery is abolished, but not because of Galatians 3.28, but because everybody is one in Christ. The whole church functions this way, and finally, it, it simply falls of its own accord. It's not like somebody was saying it's a class A text versus a class C text. And this is the explanation, guys. Why, and I, here's why this is so important. Because the current thinking on the part of so many people is all the texts that talk about, let's say, let's say, restrictions on women's service or something, they're all class C texts. Okay? They're all context-bound. So all those texts we can ignore. The maximal freedom texts we can't ignore. Those become immediately transferable according to this view. I'm saying that's completely wrong because everything is perspectival. And as a matter of fact, even Galatians 3.28 is in the context of you are Abraham's seed. That's what comes up in verse 29. You are co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. This is not a non-restrictive statement. This is a statement concerning who is Abraham's seed and that we are all one in Christ. When you're talking about how you organize the church, the context of that statement of Galatians 3.28 doesn't apply anymore. So, I want to speak to this explicitly because not only is Marva Dawn's argument a strong argument, not only is the argument around our church body and many other church bodies kind of willy-nilly, but even apart from her sort of expression of it, it's the way a lot of people think that I go get the texts that are non-context bound and they can cancel texts that are context bound. That's a wrong thinking. All texts are context bound. All texts. Paul uses Galatians 3.28 specifically in the context that he wants to discuss about inheritors of the promise and being seed of Abraham.
Okay, now, uh, let me just say in that last part about comprehensive explanation, the keys here, I'm using this Newton and Einstein thing about and using that as simply shorthand for the way stuff, here's Newton, the way stuff strikes you phenomenologically. In other words, the way it seems to you, the way you interact with it personally. Einstein is shorthand for, I, I should have probably used instead of Einstein, the guy who was actually more influential this way was Niels Bohr, but nobody knows him, you know, and so it doesn't have the same kind of impact. But Niels Bohr, who said that reality is fundamentally counterintuitive, and that's what I'm talking about, is Einstein is those theological perspectives of the scriptures that are fundamentally counterintuitive, like God elects for salvation, but he doesn't elect for damnation. See? That's fundamentally counterintuitive. What's fundamentally intuitive? You can choose this day whom you shall serve. So all of these texts that have to do with us interacting with God as co-partners in some kind of arrangement. These are all the Newtonian texts. In general, Deuteronomy is just full of this. You are my people. I brought you into this land. If you do according to the uh, laws and according to my will, you'll prosper. If not, the nations will come in and take you out and take you into exile. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7. And what is an example of Einstein? You create in me a clean heart, O God, Psalm 51, and renew a right spirit within me. You've got to do it. I can't do anything. See, now, what happens is these two systems, this is basically my argument, there is this interactive, uh, it, um, uh, uh, intuitive, phenomenological version, and then there is this essentially counterintuitive way of understanding the relationship between God and man, and they approximately relate to one another as Newtonian and Einsteinian physics do. When you want to know about how to get that eight ball in the side pocket, you use Newtonian physics. When you want to do something like splitting an atom, you use Einsteinian physics. And so much of the problems theologically have been people trying to put all of these together. I'll end with the following statement. Here is an example. <clears throat> when someone asks the question, what must I do to be saved? That's a Newtonian question. It deserves a Newtonian answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. This is improper. What must I do to be saved? Answer, you can't do anything to be saved. If the Holy Spirit chooses to work in your heart, then you... See, evangelism is by its nature a Newtonian enterprise. Election is by its nature an Einsteinian enterprise. And when you mix the two, you're screwed because it'll never work out. <clears throat> now, 
I want to say just a little bit more about the Newton and Einstein stuff at the beginning of Wednesday's uh, class, but we'll draw it to a close here. Thanks very much.